0: Well, we were here uh, last Sunday. We looked at the Golden Rule in Matthew seven verse twelve, and most commentators agree that Matthew seven twelve and the Golden Rule kind of ends the the moral and ethical teachings and the commands of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the body kind of of the Sermon on the Mount goes up to verse twelve of chapter seven. And then starting here where we are now in verse 13 up to the end of the Sermon on the Mount it's commonly thought of as Jesus's conclusions where he adjusts from the kind of ethical and moral teachings and and teaches his disciples that there are implications to what he has just told them about, how to live in his kingdom has implications for every individual, and there are implications for whether you do or do not live according to the things that he just taught in the Sermon on the Mount and the ways of his kingdom. And so in verse 13 to 27, Jesus gives what we should view as a type of call to action. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount now for about six months on and off as a church, and now he's giving those who are hearing his sermon a call to action or a call to response. And he does this by giving forewarnings to the people that he is teaching. Verse 13 to 14, he says, there is a narrow gate and there is a wide gate. Verse 16 to 20, he says, there is good fruit and there is bad fruit. Verse 21 to 23 says there's true faith and there is false faith. And in verse 24 to 27, he says there is a wise foundation for your life and there is a foolish foundation for your life. In each of these warnings, in each of these contrasts, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, they point to the coming eschatological judgment of Jesus Christ. The judgment that comes at the end of the age when the Lord will separate the righteous from the unrighteous, the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, representing those who are truly saved through Jesus Christ and those who are not. And with these four warnings that he concludes at the end of his sermon, Jesus is confronting the listeners of the Sermon on the Mount. And in turn, he's confronting us this morning who have been in the Sermon on the Mount for six months, essentially saying, I've taught you about the character that you are to have in the Beatitudes. I've taught you how to live with others. I've taught you how to live in relation to God as your father. I've taught you how to live in relation to God as judge. And now you need to do something with my teaching. It's not enough to hear it. It needs to be applied, right? James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Jesus is painting a clear picture. There is one way that leads to life and one way that leads to death. There is a narrow gate and a wide gate, good and bad fruit, true and false faith, wise and foolish foundation. He's saying those who live by the Sermon on the Mount through the power of the Holy Spirit are walking the narrow way through the narrow gate that leads to life. And those who do not take the wide gate that leads to destruction. Jesus is making his followers come to grips with the fact that they have heard what he has to say. Now, what are you going to do with it? This is the exact proper response that you and I should have to any sermon that we listen to. It's the natural end point of any biblical teaching that you and I sit under. A sermon should be received as a call to action or a call to response. The responsibility of a Christian is to ask, in light of what I've just heard, what am I to do? You see, most Christians, I think, leave church on a Sunday morning with thoughts about the sermon and maybe thoughts about the worship that they heard, but but often it is not the, the proper thoughts that we should be having. Our minds often focus on how good or enjoyable the morning was, right? We focus on how much we liked or didn't like the sermon that the preacher preached, Often we are concerned with the content to the extent that we want the content that we're listening to to be interesting. It needs to catch our attention and keep our interest. And and certainly a preacher has a responsibility to engage those whom he is speaking to. But the enjoyment level of a sermon is not where our focus should be. A consumeristic mindset leaves this place and asks, what did you think? How did you enjoy it? What did you think of the worship? How'd you like that new song? These are questions that don't ultimately matter. Instead, we should be leaving the gathering of brothers and sisters considering the word of God was just held up before me. Now, what am I to do with it? What am I to do with what I just heard? Where do I need to apply it in my life? We're not here to just listen to a nice talk and then go home. We're here to listen to the Word of God. And the Word of God changes us on the inside when we listen to it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we go home and go, Lord, what do I do with it? How do you need me to respond? That is the right response. Anytime we are under a teaching of the Word of God. And this is what Jesus is laying before those who are hearing his sermon. He's saying, there's two paths." You're going to go one or the other. You've heard where one path goes and where one path leads the gate into my kingdom. What are you going to do? And so I think a good way to hold this entire section from verse 13 to 27 in the proper context is to see that it all has to do with and follows this theme of there being two paths. And what Jesus does is he lays the two paths before us in verse 13 and 14 And then he presents two dangers that we face when we enter the narrow gate to life. First is false prophets in verse 16. And then second is false peace or false faith in verse 21. A kind of self-deception that one has faith when in fact they do not. And then after representing these dangers, he wraps up by considering what determines whether you have submitted to his lordship or not. He says, when storms come and difficulties rage, does everything crumble or does faith remain because it's built on a good foundation? So that's an overview of what we're going to be covering this week and next week. And so for this morning, we're going to specifically focus on 13 to 20 that we just read and consider what it means to enter the narrow gate and what it means to enter the wide gate and then spend the rest of our time examining the the first danger that Jesus talks about, which is false prophets. And we'll conclude this series next week with looking at the second danger, that of false peace and then the ultimate test of true faith, perseverance. And we'll be done with the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew Matthew 7, 13 to 14, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The narrow gate and the wide gate describe the two ways that every individual can go in life. There is no third option. There is only these two one leading to eternal life and ultimate joy, and one leading to judgment and eternal destruction. And what we all must know, and what we all must warn others of, is the bad news that the sinful condition of our heart means that we must, that we are all born already walking on the path to the wide gate. Because of sin, all of us are born on this wide path. David declares in Psalm 51, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And James declares in James 1.15, sin leads to death. So we are all born because of Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden, walking on a path that leads to destruction. But the good news is, the God of creation, the one who made us, the one who knit us together, had a plan from the very beginning to rescue sinners from sin. Effectively placing an exit ramp on the wide path to the narrow path that leads to life, by sending His Son to die on a cross, so that those who would trust in His work on the cross, those who would die with Him by placing their faith in Him, would walk the narrow gate to life, being saved through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because we are sinners, and sin needs to be atoned for. And instead of you and I having it laid on our shoulders so we are eternally in hell, God sent Jesus to, and laid our guilt on His shoulders so that we may be free of sin, so that we may be atoned for our sin, and we may be with the Lord from now into eternity. The reason why Jesus describes the way of destruction as wide and easy is because it is the way that our natural sinful selves are inclined to go. We would remain on the wide gate apart from the redemption of Jesus Christ. And to remain on the wide path, it's easy. It it demands nothing of us. But to continue to follow our natural sinful inclinations it requires nothing more than giving into desire is this not what our world is marked by right if you desire something if you if you want something pursue it and take it it's yours whatever you want we talked last week about how the condition of man is as a result of sin and the fall is that he is entirely self-centered and taking the wide gate requires nothing more than to remain self centered. There's no requirement to crucify flesh, there's no requirement to lay down desires. And this is the way that our world embraces. Just look at the ideologies that are coming out all over in the world. Look at the the sexual and gender revolution, the industries that make billions of dollars every year with the sole purpose of meeting the desires of people. And we know now there's this this big push into the digital world, into the virtual reality world, a place where you can literally do and be whatever you want to be. You can just imagine the depravity that's going to come along with this technology. But this is the way of the world. This is the, the wide and easy gate. Our world embraces it and encourages this way and billions are walking it. And by contrast, the way that leads to life is narrow and it's hard. It's narrow because only a remnant truly walk it. It's hard because it requires, by the Spirit's help, crucifying our flesh every single day, laying down our desires rather than giving into them, picking up our cross and carrying it. It requires us leaving things behind when we enter. The, The wide gate has lots of room. Bring all of the baggage you can carry. When you're walking down the wide break, bring yourself, bring your control, bring your comfort, pick your idol, bring it along with you. But that baggage won't fit through the narrow gate. There's not enough room. It needs to be left behind because Jesus is gracious and he won't allow us to carry baggage that keeps us from ultimately following him. And so when we enter the narrow gate, it requires letting go of control, letting go of comfort, letting go of these things that we try to hold on to through the power of the Spirit working in us. The narrow gate is hard because it also means persecution. In fact, the the word hard there in the Greek is actually a word that means tribulation, and it's usually used to describe the persecution that followers of Jesus will face. Acts 14.22, Paul says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The narrow gate is hard because it's not the way that is instinctual to natural man, it goes against our flesh. It's the way of the spirit. Galatians five sixteen. But I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You know, a comment that I hear oftentimes from those wanting to discredit and discount the faith is that faith is a crutch. Faith is for the weak. And how wrong that statement is. If you read your Bible, anywhere in the New Testament, anywhere in the Old Testament, you don't have to read very far to see just how hard faith is. I think about Abraham, who God literally went to and said, Abraham, I know you don't know me. I'm a new God to you. But leave all of your people. Leave everything that you know and go to this place that I'm not going to tell you where it is yet. Just start walking. That's not easy. Abraham, this son that I gave you after years and years of you not having a child, take him up to the mountain and sacrifice him. That's not easy. That requires an immense amount of trust. Think of countless prophets who had to preach a message that nobody wanted to hear and face persecution and death from people who hated what they had to say. The disciples themselves, they had to leave everything and just hope that this isn't crazy what I'm doing. I'm leaving my livelihood to follow this man. I hope I'm not making a big mistake. Disciples throughout history have faced persecution and hatred. You and I, we have to deal with all of these things, persecution, but we have to deal with heart issues as well. Right? When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we have to deal with these heart issues that cause us to stumble. It'd be much easier to just ignore them. But he commands us to deal with the things of the heart. And so, no, faith is not easy. Faith is not a crutch. Faith is not for the weak. In fact, it's much more true to say that weakness is giving in to every desire that you have, living for yourself, doing whatever you want to do. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not sitting up here, and I'm not saying that followers of Jesus are heroic. They're not. We're broken sinners. And it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we persevere. He is where our help comes from. He is where our strength comes from. We would fail apart from the Spirit's work in us. But I'm simply saying, faith is not weakness. It asks a lot. Our Lord asks a lot. There's a cost. So before every person is two gates: the narrow life and the wide to destruction. And Jesus teaches here that those whom take the narrow gate, the hard road, there's going to be dangers. And one of those dangers are false prophets and teachers. Matthew seven, fifteen to twenty. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bear, bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. A false prophet is a person who spreads false messages, spreads false teachings, claiming to be speaking the word of God. It's a person whom the enemy will use to steal and kill and destroy those walking the narrow way. Now, what we don't want to do with this warning from Jesus that he gives us here is one of the things that we don't want to do is we don't want to to focus on what I would call low-hanging fruit. Satan would love nothing more than if we did that. What I mean by that is there are false prophets and there are false teachers in our world that any Christian... Even someone who is brand new to faith would be able to discern very easily that they're not speaking for God. That's low-hanging fruit. They're obvious. Those are not the people who we have to be concerned with, who are going to make us stumble. They're easy to detect. These are not the people whom Jesus is warning us about. I think Jesus' description of what he says here about false prophets Gives us a really good idea of what he's warning us about. Look at what he says. Beware of those who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So think about that. From that description that Jesus is giving there, I think it's obvious that he's not warning us against the obvious false teacher or prophet. He's warning against the one whom you would never imagine is false. Sheep's clothing. So we're going to believe that they're part of the flock. We're going to look at them and they're going to look the same. And they're going to sound and act as we would expect them to sound and act. And yet inside they are ravenous wolves. They're hidden amongst the flock to kill and consume the flock. And his description tells us they're going to be hard to detect. This is what Jesus is warning us about, not those in the world that are easy to see, those that are difficult to see. In a way, what this is, is it's a warning not to be misled or make judgments based on appearances. Right? What does he say to the Pharisees? A couple warnings in Matthew 23, 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrite, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and indulgence. Matthew 27, or 23, 27 to 28, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you are also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So we see when Jesus is describing the Pharisees, the Pharisees were meant to lead the people into godliness. He says, on the outside, you appear clean. On the outside, you appear Beautiful. You appear righteous, but inwardly you're full of greed, you're full of self-indulgence, you're full of uncleanness and hypocrisy. Jesus is telling us, don't judge by appearances. And I think one of the great dangers that we have in our day is being misled by appearances because so much in our world and our culture is based on the outward, shallow appearance of one another. I think about how many countless men have been able to become pastors, who have been able to increase their flock by hundreds, by thousands, solely because they're attractive, because they're charismatic, and because they have a good message and they're great communicators. But inwardly, they lack the character to sustain the position that they have. The outside looks good and so many people fall for it while the inside is full of self-indulgence. And what's the result that we too often see when these things happen and literally every time it happens, breaks my heart. A big fall. Broken hearts hurt people and damaged if not destroyed church. And the world pointing at Jesus' church. And you know, I'll look at them. Why the church so often gets behind and elevates the same value that the world does boggles my mind. And anyone who listens to these sorts of men, because we think it's not a big deal, we have to understand that we are implicit in the problem of giving such men a platform. We must use discernment. We must understand the seriousness of the word of God. We can sometimes be so flippant towards the teaching that we listen to. We have to understand the seriousness of this word and how it should be handled. So we're not to judge by appearance. But Jesus says you can know false prophets and look out for them. How do we do so? You'll know them by their fruit. Verse 16, you'll recognize them by their fruit, whether it's good or bad. The fruit of an individual will tell you whether they are healthy or diseased, whether they are true or false prophets. And too often in our world, we get so focused on numbers. We think, well, their gathering is growing every week. There's tens, hundreds, thousands. That's good fruit, not necessarily. We need to look at more than that. So, I want to lay before you just a couple of considerations that followers of Jesus need to know how do we recognize false prophets and it 's not about going on a witch hunt that 's not what it is it 's not what Jesus is warning us about here, but he is warning us to have discernment to protect your faith because the enemy would love nothing more than to cause you to slip and so 1 John 4, 1, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. And the first thing to consider is, you need to look at the whole picture. Both teaching and conduct. We so often just look at teaching. We, We ignore conduct. God expects both Of the men who are leading his church. And so if one's teaching sounds good. But their conduct doesn't align. That should be concerning. Because they either don't believe what they're preaching. Or it hasn't taken root in their heart yet. And vice versa. If someone conducts themselves well. But has questionable teaching. That should raise an alarm. Because there's very respectable people. Who don't believe in Jesus. Consider them both. Teaching. And conduct. Both matter. Scripture has a good amount to say about false prophets. And some of the warnings are very obvious. And so I'm going to focus on a couple of the more subtle warnings. The things that we need to discern regarding wolves in sheep's clothing. The first thing comes out of Jeremiah eight ten to 11 Where it says, From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. This is a warning from the Lord to false prophets who were misleading the kingdom of Judah, leading up to the exile of Assyria. The Lord was angry with his people and Jeremiah was proclaiming judgment while false prophets were comforting the people with false peace. And the word lightly there in the ESV, it means trifling or superficial promises. They were making trifling and superficial promises that were not from the Lord. These prophets are preaching peace when there is no peace. And from this, we need to take a couple of warnings. And the first thing is that often a false teacher in sheep's clothing will be able to discern based not so much on what they say, but what they don't say. These false prophets were speaking an agreeable and pleasant message A message that was comforting to the people. That is what false prophets and teachers do. These messages are attractive. They're pleasant. They sound nice. It's always comforting. There is nothing offensive about them to the natural man. And that should raise alarm bells immediately. The message of Jesus is offensive. The message of the cross is offensive to the natural man. To say to people, you are a sinner on a road to hell, that's offensive. We can't remove that offense. But these men will downplay it, or more likely, completely remove that offense. And everything just sounds nice. They've got this beautiful message. And oftentimes, this message that they have, it'll just be consistently about love. There will be no wrath. There will be no judgment. And there certainly won't be any emphasis on any need for you to repent. Don't listen to such things. We must listen to the whole counsel of God. Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did the false prophets. If everyone can listen to a teacher, whether they know Christ or not, just think, wow, this is inspiring. This is amazing. Out of the natural, there's a problem. So often I hear preachers preaching messages where the word of God makes you the center. God's the center of the word of God, not you. So often I hear preachers preaching a message, for example, on David and Goliath. All of a sudden, you're David. And that whole story is about the fact that you're David and you have a Goliath that you have to crush. The Bible is not about us being the center. The Bible is about God. In his message to sinners. Second Peter two, one, But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who brought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Peter says false, false prophets and teachers will deny the master who bought them. One of the ways that this happens subtly is an individual's teaching of Jesus' death. False prophets and teachers will talk about the cross and they'll talk about the death of Christ, but pay close attention to their view of Jesus' death. How is it presented? Do they speak of atonement for sin? Do they speak of the satisfaction of God's wrath against our guilt or is it simply that Jesus won a better life for us? These things matter deeply. In his book, the, the Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he coined the term cheap grace, and we've talked about this at Move Church before. He, he defines it as the preaching of forgiveness without the need of repentance. It's it's communion without confession. Cheap grace is, is grace without the cross. It, it's grace without Jesus Christ. It's, it's emphasizing the benefits of Christianity without the costs that are involved in it. And the warning against cheap, just cheap grace that he coined back in the 40s, it arose again in the 90s during a, a movement that became known as the Lordship Salvation Movement when it was being taught that so long as you profess the name of Jesus Christ, you're saved. And it, it completely didn't take into account the call throughout Scripture to repentance the call to live a righteous life. And so beware of what's being taught and what the motivation of the cross is. There's a need for repentance. There's a need to understand that there's atonement in the cross. Ultimately, whether a prophet or a teacher is true or false, it will be revealed over time. It will be revealed by the fruit that is produced whether it's good or bad fruit. If they're a false prophet, the fruit produced both in teaching and in conduct will not match the claims they make about who they are. And so we need to watch closely. I understand that this is a heavy message, but it's a necessary message. We must know what to look for, how to protect ourselves because Satan would love nothing more than to use someone who sounds good in order to throw you off your faith. I'll leave you with this kind of warning to us as individuals that that we must examine ourselves, that we must be willing to look at ourselves and, and the people whom we listen to. We must be aware that sometimes in our own ungodly desires that remain, we want to hear from those who solidify our position. We want to only hear from those who support our claims, who make us feel better. And we have a responsibility to pursue truth, not what we want to hear. Second Timothy 4.3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is true and your word is glorious. And through it, It leads to life. It leads to you. Father, may we as a people hold it high, in high regard, Lord. I ask you, Father, that you would give us wisdom and that you would give us discernment, knowing that we have an enemy who would love to take us off the rails who would love to devour. And Lord, we must be conscious of what we are allowing ourselves to listen to, what kind of teaching we are absorbing. Father, may we look for those who preach your word as it is to the best that they can, knowing that no man is perfect, everyone will make mistakes from time to time, but that their heart reflects that of yours. Father, may we stand strong against your word that that we may hold fast to the promises that are in there, the promises that are for us. Lord, we've we've talked about how the, the promises of certain false gospels aren't near as glorious as the promises that you actually give us. And so, Father, guard us and protect us. Thank you, Lord, that, that you who saved us will hold us fast. Give us discernment, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.